Uh, yes, I am. Thank you, Bunty. All right. I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Sangha. Actually, sorry. <laughs> I'm off it today. I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Yeah, that's what happens when you find out that you, you got limited time when you chose a huge topic. So I will try to uh, truncate some of the stuff I was going to talk about today, but uh, hopefully not too much because <clears throat> this topic is, is near and, and dear to my heart. In fact, I would say that this topic uh, on the five aggregates uh, was born out of uh, frustration, let's say. Not frustration that I carry now, but frustration that I had uh, initially when I was beginning to study Buddhism in a more serious way. When I was transitioning from being uh, simply a meditator to someone who really wanted to know uh, the philosophy of the Dhamma. And this frustration with uh, the five aggregates, if you don't know what the five ag aggregates are, uh, they're often phrased as the five clinging aggregates of form, feeling, perception, uh, fabrication, and consciousness. The fourth and fifth one, translators have a lot of difficulty with finding the right term for. In Pali, uh, sankara can be translated as, as fabrication, but it can also be translated as volitional consciousness, um, can be... Uh, translated as uh, like for, uh, you know uh, volitional formations and things like that uh, we might also just think of it simply as intention and each one I'll, I'll get into more specifically uh, later uh, consciousness is also one of those things uh, in Pali it's uh, vijnana and that's one of those words where we can translate it as consciousness or awareness but it also has more of a uh, of an active component, we might even translate it as something more like discernment. Some uh, scholars have translated it that way. And I wanted to talk about these these five aggregates in Pali Kandas, which itself can kind of be a weird translation, because aggregates kind of doesn't mean anything. Some of us might think of like a math term or something. We don't even know what it means when we say aggregate. But in, in Pali, uh, kanda can also refer to like a group or a heap or a pile, a mass, especially if it's like a mass of wood or like a tree trunk. And so all of these terms, when I was initially learning about, about the philosophy aspect of Buddhism, uh, seemed like a lot, a lot of things that I couldn't wrap my head around. And one of the ways that it had been explained to me by a teacher was that these five aggregates are essentially what we are. That it was the Buddha's explanation uh, or an alternate, alternate uh, solution to the problem of, of selfhood, of, of having a self. That we're not a self, we're anatta. And anatta then means having these, these five aggregates. And I was initially confused because as I was starting to study the suttas, what I was hearing from some of these teachers and also reading in the commentaries wasn't matching what I saw in the suttas. And I kept coming across it again and again with this, this confusion and this, this dissonance and it not making a lot of sense to me. And so I went to one teacher and, and asked about that. And I was given more or less 
that kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a platitude or something, this, this idea that, well, you know, it's really complicated if you keep meditating and you keep studying and, you know, one day it'll all just sort of make sense. It'll unfold for you and you'll totally get it. But as I kept studying the suttas, it kept seeming more and more like uh, confusion and misunderstanding. Like I, I really wasn't getting it. And so I, years later, I went to a, another teacher and presented him with the same problem. And he says, you know, in those instances, when we find something really hard to understand, it's easy to assume we're not intelligent or wise enough to understand it. But sometimes we don't understand something just because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and he says, if you look at, at the, the Pali Suttas and you look at the, the five khandhas, the five clinging, clinging aggregates, you do see something quite different. Now, uh, this brings me to last month's discussion where I was talking about Sariputta's summary of the Dhamma, the summary of the Buddha's teachings. And in that one, I especially focused on uh, the Buddha's teaching of subduing passion and desire, uh, mostly craving, this thing that we're, we're often uh, clinging to and holding on to and, and, and find so precious and dear, and it is the source of our suffering. But there was this other aspect that I wanted to talk about and ended up not having enough time to really get into it, which is these five clinging aggregates that Sariputta himself says in the uh, Devadaha Sutta, our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and, and desire for form, for feeling, for perception, for fabrications. Our teacher teaches the subduing in, of passion and desire for consciousness. And again, when I would read passages like that in the past, I'd be so confused because, like, well, if this is what we are, how is that the problem? I thought the problem was having a self, not having aggregates. But the Buddha is saying that here's this issue with aggregates, that this is uh, a big part of our, our passion, our desire, our suffering. And truth be told, if you go back to the Buddha's very first discourse, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatthamana Sutta, he talks about these four noble truths in precisely... Uh, in reference to the five clinging aggregates, which often gets overlooked. The Four Noble Truths are one of those things also, too, that if you ask anyone who has been studying Buddhism for a while, they might tell you the same refrain. There's Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, there's a cause to suffering, right? there's cessation to suffering, and there's a path to develop in regard to suffering. But when you read the Dhamma Chaka Pavatthana Sutta, you see the Buddha treat this uh, in, a, in a much different way than we're, we're often uh, presented with it. And so in this sutta, this is uh, Sanyutta Nikaya 56.11, the Buddha says, Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there. 
i.e. craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And this, monks, is the noble truth for the cessation of stress, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress, precisely this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And then the Buddha says even more on those things, of, of not looking at the Four Noble Truths as simple, something simply to, to memorize, or simply something to see or have insight into, but rather each one gives us a, a particular task, a kind of, of uh, effort that needs to be done to really bring these to fruition. And the Buddha says that he did this himself to become liberated, that he had to comprehend suffering, the first noble truth. He had to abandon its cause, the second noble truth. Realize its cessation, the third noble truth. And develop the path to its cessation, the fourth noble truth. And again, we see here that his summary, in short, of suffering is the five clinging aggregates, that they are stressful and its cause is craving. In another sutta, the Bada Sutta, the Buddha says uh, that the five clinging aggregates are a burden. He says, monks, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. And which is the burden? The five clinging aggregates. It should be said, which five? The form clinging aggregate, the feeling clinging aggregate, the perception clinging aggregate, the fabrications clinging aggregate, the consciousness clinging aggregate. And which is the carrier of the burden? The person, it should be said. This venerable with such a name, such a clan name, this is called the carrier of the burden. And which is the taking up of the burden? The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight relishing now here and now there, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, and so on. And which is the casting off of the burden, the remainderless fading and cessation, right? And so what I find uh, useful for us to focus on is the idea that the five clinging aggregates, as we usually relate to them, not as, as categories of our being, but as rather actions that we participate in, are uh, symptomatic of our stress, are manifestations of the stress of clinging and craving. And rather than this be an explanation, uh, or rather an alternative to a self, we see that it is distinct from the person. Now, some people find this part confusing as well. You know, some people find this to, to you know, uh, fight against what we often know about this selflessness that's taught. And to me, I actually don't find that part of the sutta where the, the Buddha says that the carry of the burden is, a per, is the person confusing. In that, I don't actually think that the Buddha ever taught one way or the other whether one has a self or no self or not self. In fact, when people propositioned him with those kind of philosophical statements and wanted him to weigh in, 
that's when he would remain silent or simply say that the question was missing the point. And that what the Buddha says here by referencing the person, he means you, he means me. That regardless of what we might be and what, might, what we might be constituted from and whatever, whatever philosophical notions, whatever views we might have about ourselves, the truth is there still is this experience of being a person, this experience of being burdened by the way we cling. And so to get back to these aggregates, not simply as categories of being or categories of a person, but instead the kind of actions that help us cling, the actions that we cling to and cling through in the sense that we are always forming, we are always feeling, we are always perceiving, we are always intending, and we are always cognizing. But oftentimes what we've been doing is doing that in, uh, in service to clinging or for the sake of clinging. And what the Buddha offers us instead is to abandon the kind of activities that lead to clinging, these clinging aggregates, and begin putting them to work in terms of leading to dispassion, of release, of unburdening. One of my teachers has put this in a beautiful way, where he says, the kandhas, the way we usually live with them, are like a bag of, of bricks that we've been carrying on our back. And when we take the Buddha's lessons to heart and begin applying them, we take that pack, that sack of bricks, off of our back and begin using those bricks to pave a path. So you might say that what I'm uh, advocating for today is paving a path with the five aggregates. Instead of looking, them, looking at them solely as categories of a person, various modes that, or lumps or heaps, uh, in the traditional sense, the way it's been passed down to us, to instead look at the way the Buddha talks about the aggregates in the suttas as what we might call tools of the path, of taking what has been trapping us and using precisely that for our release. Quite frankly, to help unburden and liberate us. There's another sutta that the, the Buddha talks about these kind of ideas, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. In fact, I'm only going to share one point from that, which is the Buddha says that whatever, stay, whatever one stays obsessed with, that is, that is what one is measured by. Or to say that whatever we cling to not only defines us, but limits us. And so our normal mode of being this way that we, that we act on the world, the way that our subjective experience latches onto things and clings to things, forming, fabricating, cognizing, feeling, and so on, those are the, the, the things that end up defining us, limiting us. We end up being measured by them. And the Buddha, time and again, is suggesting to us, recommending to us, and showing us a way to be liberated from those things, to unburden ourselves with them. And so, in truth, the way this often ends up working in the path is through meditation. We often don't realize that we're already using these modes of activity to begin with. That's why we're here. That's why we exist the way we do as a person. We're already forming and fabricating and so on, the whole list of them. And so what we do is we use those for the sake of meditation. All of this is happening 
within the mind. That means that when we are meditating, we're sensitive to form, rupa, which means the, you know, the body, but also the sense of the body. We end up sensitive to feeling, and that's uh, vedana in, in Pali, right? And feeling in this sense is, you know, the, ple- the pleasant sensations, the unpleasant sensations, the neutral sensations, and we, we sensitize ourselves to those as well. And we do the same with perceptions, the kind of thoughts that we have, where our minds are directed and pulled to, the intentions that we place, and how we use them, and the consciousness and where it rests. So the whole activity of meditation itself is retraining our use of the five aggregates, I believe. And so we can look at these as, as categories that we have to memorize and go through them and try to, to pick out each single one in, in meditation. But I think in, in truth, oftentimes, that's not what needs to be done. Because any time we bring ourselves to meditation, we're already bringing the five aggregates along. And this is also true of the six sense doors. Uh, we know these as the five senses and then the mind or chitta in Pali, which also means heart, the mind and the heart. All the emotions are also in the mind for Buddhists. Chitta encapsulates all of that. And so those six sense doors, six sense media, the senses themselves, are also manifest in these five aggregates. But these aggregates are actions. They are things that we are doing. And these are things that we cling to, and also the modes with which we cling. And so that's why when we sit in meditation, it's not important to really try to have special insight into each specific aggregate, but instead use the mind and the body towards the goals of meditation, gladdening the mind, relinquishment, being sensitive to and training the mind to let go, to unburden ourselves. And I find this, this particular understanding of the five aggregates to be more applicable, useful, not, not just philosophical meanderings. And it's tempting to, to want those. It's tempting to uh, seek those, those out. I, I often think that the reason why we, we have such a, a plethora of traditions in Buddhism today and so many different uh, interpretations and commentaries is precisely because somewhere along the way people wanted to um, answer questions the Buddha himself refused to answer. And so you'll, you'll see that quite a lot in the history and the development of Buddhist thought. That there are things that the Buddha was silent on for a reason and somewhere along the line someone tried to answer it anyway. Right? Well, the Buddha says there's no soul, but what else is there? Well, maybe there's these things. The Buddha listed these things. But look at how the Buddha actually meant for them to be used. To what purpose? To what aim? I'm always reminded of the Buddha's teachings on uh, the handful of leaves. The idea being that everything that the Buddha teaches is in reference to the Four Noble Truths, in reference to the idea that we suffer because we cling and we crave. And all of the training leads us to the same idea of dispassion, of cooling the mind and the body, cooling this whole process, abandoning and letting go, finding peace in that.
but it's so easy to get really heady and caught up in, in philosophy, uh, which, trust me, it, to a certain extent is kind of painful for me to say because I love philosophy. I read Western philosophy all the time. I love Eastern philosophy. We kind of want things to be complicated. And when I was first learning about Buddhism, I thought it should be complicated, that when it seemed simple, that, was, that couldn't possibly be true or the case. It wasn't mystical and mysterious enough. But in truth, as we begin to practice, we see that the whole path is always drawing us inward into our own subjective experience. To throw a big, heady philosophical term, our phenomenological experience, the process of being a person, the process of being a human, and finding a way to liberate the mind, unburden the mind. And the way we usually are, at least with these five aggregates and onward, is in a way that, that feeds into our craving, feeds into our, our clinging, feeds into our, our passion and delight for the, the different kinds of, of, uh, of craving, right? For, for sensuality, for becoming, for non-becoming. And the Buddha's teachings on this are simple for a reason, because they're meant to be useful. They're meant to be used. They are that handful of leaves. And it's the same thing with these aggregates. That for the longest time, I was beating my head against, trying to understand them. Like, what does it mean that there's form and feeling and perception? And how is perception different than consciousness? And what the heck are fabrications, right? Certainly the way they're, they're usually translated as volitional formations. Like, what, what even is that? But the truth is, it's just the experience of being human, being a person. But the way we often relate to them is in a, in a burdensome way. A way that is tightening and constricting and limiting. There's a reason why the Buddha teaches us to unburden ourselves and take down those bricks and use them to pave a path instead. That that's how we find our freedom. That's how we find the path easier to walk. And we find that the best way to, uh, let's say, reprogram our mind is through meditation. The Buddha talked about the Eightfold Path as right concentration and its supports. So I know that these days, mindfulness ends up being the buzzword that everyone likes. But in the traditional sense, what we find in the Pali Suttas is that right effort and right mindfulness are working in service of right concentration. Which is just to say that meditation is, is the primary practice. Everything else supports the practice of meditation. And there, there's a reason why. Because that's the place where we can get the most done. And it's also the place where we can find nourishment and refreshment that encourages us and gives us motivation to continue on the path. Because the Buddha taught a gradual path. That means that even with these five aggregates that we're trying to unburden ourselves from, we unburden ourselves through them in progressive stages of rarefication and uh, refinement, let's say. That we give up uh, our usual procl proclivities in terms of, of sensuality and move to the happiness and bliss and peace that we feel in meditation, that that becomes our primary nourishment, our primary food, our primary delight. And it's from that place of refreshment that we're able to do the work of retraining the mind, I think. So I will uh, try to make this a little shorter by ending with some verses that the Buddha said about the five aggregates. 
and then I'll open up for discussion before we end the service today. So the, the Blessed One said, said further, A burden indeed are the five aggregates, and the carrier of the burden is the person. Taking up the burden in the world is stressful. Casting off the burden is bliss. Having cast off the heavy burden and not taking on another. Pulling up craving along with its root. One is free from hunger, totally unbound. So I will clarify that when the Buddha talks about taking up the burden in the world, when the Buddha talks about the loka or the world or the, or the all, um, that he sometimes references that, it's referring again to that phenomenological experience. The all in the world is us within this body and this mind. That's also, too, why the Buddha called it this uh, fathom-long body, fathom-long mind. So much to explore, so much to see, so much to experience and work with. The tools that we have are all within and inside. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. Thank you.